Welcome to Set for Life with Pastor Ray Jensen. You can find us at setforliferadio.com. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So let's listen from God's Word, verse by verse, on how we can prepare for the coming of the Lord and Messiah Jesus, who died on the cross, so that you can be set for life. You'll be set for life if you give your heart and believe what He's done for you. You'll be set for life with the treasure stored up in heaven when you're through. You'll be set for life. I'm going to call today's message Bad Boys. I, I know it's a terrible, it's a terrible name. I don't know what else to give it, but... Um, Makes me think about the bad boys, the the bad boys of royalty. They're now going to have their judgment coming to them. But what do you do with bad boys? You spank them <laughs> or you punish them. How many of you ever got pops in high school or, or pops in grades? Well, I don't know if they do pops in high school anymore, but pops in pops, we called it, where you get spanked. And so God still gave bad boys pops. And that's what he's going to do here in uh, chapter eight. And uh, we're going to start at 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 7, at the death of Ben-Hadad. Then Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick, and it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, Take a present in your hand, and go meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? Okay, this is interesting. Here's Ben Hadad here. He was that bad guy that's always been messing with Israel all this time. And he wanted to inquire of the Lord to see if he was going to live. Now, remember how Ben Hadad, he was always trying to sneak his military around the Lord and try to attack Israel. Not a good guy. But then consider also King Ahaziah back in chapter one. He's that guy that fell through the lattice of his palace. He fell and got hurt. And so he wanted to inquire of who? The Lord? No. He inquired of the false god Beelzebub to see if he was going to live or not. So you've got one king asked a false god if he was going to live, and then you have another king wanted to inquire of the Lord. Ben-Hadad wanted to inquire of the Lord. It makes me wonder if perhaps maybe Ben-Hadad started to listen a little bit to some of the things that he learned through Elisha. 2 Kings 8, verse 9. So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he will really die. Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. Okay, there's some interesting things going on here as you read between the lines. Why did Elisha tell Hazael that the king would live, but then he spun it around the other way and said that he was going to die? Why say one thing and then switch it to the other? Well, here's a spoiler alert. Hazael is going to murder Ben-Hadad. He's going to murder the king. So Elisha basically said the king would recover as he would have recovered if Hazael would not have interfered. 
he's going to kill him. Now, if he just, if Haziel had kept his hands off of him and not killed him or not tried to kill him, he would have lived. But the Lord told Elisha, not just that the king would die, but how he would die. So Elisha knows that Hazael is going to kill him. And that is why Elisha set a stern look on Hazael, because he knew he was looking at somebody that was just about to commit murder. Now, you know when your kids misbehave in church, and so all you're allowed to do is give them what's called the death glare, <laughs> that evil stare that could like burn burn laser beams through the air at your kids. You got that look. You look at me, boy. You know, you're hoping it'll scare them into straighten it up. And this is the kind of look that Elisha gave him. This news that he knew about, it bothered Elisha so much, he started to weave. Now, do you think Haziel got the hint? Do you think Haziel thought, wait a minute, why are you looking at me like that? Do you think I'm about to do something here? <laughs> do you think he got the hint? <laughs> Let's look. Second Kings 8 and 12. And Haziel said, why is my Lord weeping? Well, I guess that answers that. <laughs> Apparently, he didn't get it. <laughs> So, Elisha, he answered, he said, because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel, their strongholds you will set on fire, and their young men you will kill with the sword, and you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. So Hazael said, but what is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. Okay, Hazael, he, this guy was wicked to the core. He had so much wicked, evil intent in him. It was just, it was just waiting to kill a lot of people in cowardly ways here, as Elisha knew was going to happen. Now, this guy is going to be bad. I mean, just bad to the bone. But when he heard Elisha's prophecy about all the destruction that he was going to cause, he pretended to be offended. He said, what, am I a dog acting like he was totally incapable of doing this? <laughs> it's that, guys, it's the same crazy game that people play today that, oh, you offended me. How dare you? You know, that kind of reaction was just a smokescreen for hiding his real self. So when Elisha told him that he would become king over Syria, what do you think Haziel is going to do to respond? Do you think he's going to stand there and argue with Elisha over him being becoming king? Or do you think he's going to stand there to argue about, no, no, wait a minute, this damage you said I was going to do? Wait a minute, let's talk about this for a while. No, no, no. What do you think he's going to do? You're going to become king. Oh, he's going to take off. Watch. Second Kings 8, 14. Then he departed from Elisha. There you go. See? He wants to stand there and argue and bicker about stuff. Well, guess what? You're going to become king. Okay, bye. I got things to do. <laughs> it's, just, it's like, I'm going to become king. I'm, a, I'm getting out of here. Let's get on this now. <laughs> this guy, oh, wow. So anyway, then he departed from Elisha and came to his master who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me you would surely recover. But it happened on the next day that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face so that he died. And Haziel reigned in his place. So again, guys, it's just amazing to me how Haziel acted all offended at all of Elisha's negative predictions that he said about him. But once he found out he was going to become king, he took off. I got to, I got things to do. <laughs> he, he wanted this, this royalty thing quick. He wanted to be king right away. 
And so what did he do about it? He ran straight to the king. He ran straight to Ben-Hadad. Now that right there shows you how the evil that was within him, that he even denied that he had, it suddenly sprang up in him and moved him to go out and start doing the very bad things that Elisha said he was going to do, which started with murdering Ben-Hadad. Now, if Hazael had been a godly man, then he would have waited upon the Lord to move him up to the throne through a natural process, just like David had done. If you remember King David, well, before he was king, David knew he was going to be king before it happened. Remember, he was uh, anointed as a young guy, but David adamantly refused to harm King Saul. David never tried to short circuit the process and hurry it up like Hazael did because David knew that the Lord would eventually get him to the throne in his proper timing. Now, Hazael, he should have trusted God's process. The Lord told Elijah back in 1 Kings 19.15, he said this, Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. So not only did Hazael just become a murderer, but he also downright rejected the Lord's own timing by taking matters into his own hands. He would have become king over Syria no matter what. The problem is he wanted it right now. Second Kings 8.16 Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, began to reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Oh, here we go again. Verse 19. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him and his sons forever. Okay, friends, those of you who actually have your Bibles open, good for you. You ought to be. Okay, have that book open. Follow me along, okay? But go to 2 Kings 8, verse 19. That there, verse 19. You need to underline or highlight, put brackets around it, draw explosions. I don't care what you have to do. This is very important that you see this right here. This, this verse 19 is very, very important. And it's here because just in case any of us have forgotten that the Lord keeps his promises, we're given a nice reminder here that no matter what kind of evil these guys did, the Lord would not destroy Judah. No matter how bad they got, he walked like Ahab, he walked like all the other crazy kings did, the Lord would not destroy them. Why? Because of his promise, it says. Do you see that in verse 19? Because of his promise to Judah. Now, the lamp that is mentioned here is this presence of guidance and comfort. When you're in a dark place, a lamp is very comforting. It shows you where to go. It gives you light to see by. It's a very comforting, illuminated thing. First Kings eleven thirty six. I want to show you. And to his son, I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. This is Jerusalem. So he put, he put that lamp there. It is a promise, and he's going to keep it. Now, friends, when God binds his name on something, he signs it with permanent ink. It's not something that you can erase or take off. 
Now, this promise here brings up an important theological issue to go over. There's a lot of people, they believe that God will retract his promises if people sin. Okay, salvation is a promise. God does not remove it just because we're sinners. He already knew we were sinners before he went into this, okay? But they think that when they sin, God gets to remove his promises. It's like they think that God gets to say, oh, look, you messed up. Well, now I get to take everything back. I get to take away everything I said that I would do because you messed up. No. According to this verse, verse 19, it says the Lord kept his promise for Judah because he bound it, he promised it by covenant. Okay, he promised that. Now, okay, let me flip it over a little bit here. This in no way, shape, or form means that God condoned Judah's sins. It does not mean that at all. What this does mean is simply that when God binds a promise with a covenant power upon it, that God keeps it irregardless of what man does. It doesn't matter what man does. When God promises it and binds it with covenant, he's going to keep it. God does not base his truths, nor does he bind his promises based upon man's character. God establishes his promises based upon himself irregardless of us. Now, God promised to keep Judah. He said he was going to do it, and so he has to do it, even though they got sinful. He's going to keep his promise in this verse of 19. This is our reminder of that promise that God made way back early on. So before we move on, let's remember that Israel had long been split into two different kingdoms. They were ruled by two different kings but they both had the same name. <laughs> now, isn't that convenient to just mess you all up? Their name was Joram. And so the king who ruled over the Israelite kingdom called Judah, he was called by his derivative name of Jehoram instead of Joram. So one is Joram, one is Jehoram. This helps us tell the two kings apart. This would be like saying Ray and Raymond instead of Ray and Ray. Gives us a little way to set them apart from each other. So we have King Joram of Israel, of the kingdom of Israel, and then we have King Jehoram of the kingdom of Judah. They're both Israelite nations, both Israelite kingdoms. And what's unfortunate about this passage here is that King Jehoram of Judah, he apparently didn't learn much from his godly father, King Jehoshaphat, that came before him. He gravitated more to his wife. She had a sinful behavior because she was the daughter of that wicked king Ahab. She got all this messed up stuff from him. And so she got into her husband's ears. And so he threw away all the good godly things that Jehoshaphat had taught him. So we had a blip of godliness on the radar through Jehoshaphat. But now that he's already gone, we're back to this Israelite worship of Baal. It was dug in deep. It was refusing to let go. And it was stuck in Israelite culture. So you can see how severe the difficulties were that Elisha had to deal with in his ministry. It was this dug-in sin that wasn't, didn't want to go anywhere. Second Kings 8 and 20. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. So Joram went to Zair and all his chariots with him. Then he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. Thus Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day. 
and Libna revolted at that time. Okay, now I just made a big explanation of the two different names, Joram and Jehoram, only to have it say that Joram went to Zare. <laughs> this is actually Jehoram here. Why he's called Joram in this passage, I have no idea. The point of using two different names was to help us tell the two guys apart. But <laughs> how do I know who this is? Since we know that Jehoram was king of Judah, and it says that Edom revolted against Judah, we know this is Jehoram, the king of Judah here, not Joram, the king of Israel. In fact, if you look it up in the the same passage in the NIV, it says Jehoram. So don't ask me why Joram is said here like this. I, I, I don't know. This is not an error. But you can call me Ray or call me Raymond. We know who we're talking about here of Judah. Now, this area of Edom was a place that came under Judah's control long back when Jehoshaphat had defeated a combined attack force that was made up of many different kingdoms, and Edom was part of that force. So you can read about this story in Second Chronicles chapter 20 if you want to. So Edom had later helped Israel fight against King Mesha of Moab. We read about that back in Second Kings chapter 3, just kind of building our history up here. But for some reason or another, Edom had enough of being under somebody else's authority. They just didn't want it anymore, so they fought back. Jehoram took his army to put this revolt down, but he was defeated, and he barely escaped with his life. What the Bible is trying to show us here is that the serving of false gods will bring defeat into your life. That's what's, what it's being said here. You serve false gods you're going to have defeat. Now, had Jehoram been more like his dad Jehoshaphat, instead of listening to the wickedness of Ahab's line from his wife and not served that false god Baal, he most likely would have succeeded in this military move here. More likely, probably Edom wouldn't have rebelled in the first place. So serving false gods brings a lot more problems. And the Bible is trying to show us from this little story here that the entire kingdom of Judah was a lot weaker kingdom under Jehoram's wickedness because he served Baal instead of the Lord. Now, friends, I want you to get this, though, because we just read it in verse 19. I'm going to make verse 19 stick in you, okay? Even though they were still under covenant promise, they still were weaker and they had a defeat, okay? Again, this demands our attention here. We've got to look at this, that just because you might be under covenant promise, that does not give you the right to sin all you want to. Just because you're under covenant promise doesn't mean you get to turn and do things your way instead of doing things God's way. Because God can still execute harsh judgment even to those who are under covenant promise. We've just seen this here with Judah. They're under covenant promise, but God still judged them for their sin. Okay, I hope you're catching this. Second Kings 8.23 now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, now there's more information here than just what Second Kings gives us. Considering how bad he was, <laughs> I had to run over to another book to find out what kind of death Joram died. And he was a bad guy. How, how did he die? Let's find that out. Second Chronicles 21, verse 18. 
says the Lord afflicted Jehoram with an incurable disease of the bowels. In the course of time, at the end of the second year, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great pain. His people made no funeral fire in his honor, as they had for his predecessors. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He passed away to no one's regret. (laughs) Wow. It's like they wanted him gone, right? Now, let me throw something at you here. If, if you're one of those people that believes that sealed covenant promise condones a sin license, then I want you to take a very good look at this passage here that we just read. I want you to make a real good snapshot of this. This was a king who was under covenant promise. He had that covenant promise of Judah for David's sake because of the covenant God made to David. This is a guy who's under covenant promise according to the Davidic covenant. Now, you need to observe and ask the question, was Jehoram allowed to sin all he wanted to and abuse the covenant promise that he was given? Because that's what a lot of people think that covenant promise means when it comes to salvation. Oh, I'm saved by Jesus. I'm going to be saved no matter what happens, so I might as well just sin all I want to. Let's party. Okay, I want you to look at Jehoram here real quick. Was he allowed to sin all he wanted to? You really have to answer that. Did he get away with it? All the sin and all the stuff he did, listening to Ahab's daughter, was he allowed to get away with it? No, he wasn't. Look at what his sin cost him. He, He died. Judgment was executed upon him, and it was miserable. It was a terrible, agonizing death. Now, friends, I'm going to make this as abundantly clear as I possibly can. The fact that covenant promise does not, does not, I'm just not sure anybody, everybody's hearing me on this, covenant promise does not condone a sin license. It just doesn't. I've been accused of saying that, you know, once saved, always saved means you can sin all you want to. I have never said that. People call me a a Calvinist and all these kind of weird labels. Uh Uh-uh. No, I reject that. don't, Don't do me that way. This is not what this is. We're just reading Scripture, what it says. Covenant promise does not condone a sin license. Jehoram was under covenant promise, and he had to pay for his sin. But covenant promise also does not invalidate God's promise either. Just because the guy sinned doesn't mean God could say, well, oh, I'm taking my promise away because you were bad. Okay. King Joram, Jehoram, whatever. King Joram, <laughs> he went out painfully, and he went with no honor. And the people of Judah were actually kind of glad that he went. But God did not take out Judah because of it. God did not destroy Judah as bad as they were. Because he promised to them, he did not destroy Judah. Judah must be kept. Friends, please hear me. The promise of God must be kept, or else he's not God. If God can break promises, then God's a liar. 2 Kings 8 and 25. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. Thank you for listening to Set for Life. 
We hope you can join us next time, unless Jesus returns for us first. Set for Life is the radio ministry of Pastor Ray Jensen. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast at setforliferadio.com. Hi, this is Ray Jensen. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to encourage you in God's Word. If the Bible doesn't excite you, then you're not reading it. I want you to remember that you are not worthless. You are priceless. Messiah Jesus died on the cross to redeem you so that you can be set for life. You'll be set for life.